Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of Movies and Tea. I'm your host as always, Elwood Jones. Joining me of course is my co-host, Miss Kim Lowe. Hello. On tonight's episode we continue our evaluation of the filmography of Heo Miyazaki, uh, the founder of Studio Ghibli, as we look at the next film in this filmography, 1986's Laputa, Castle in the Sky, um, a film which could be seen by many as uh, having many of the trademarks that we now come to associate with Studio Ghibli, um, as well as being a much more ambitious work, um, do we say, than Nausicaa Valley of the Wind, as we see improvements in both animation and in terms of storytelling as well. But before uh, we get into that, so Kim, I mean, Castle in the Sky, it's a weird one for me because I, I feel that I should love it more than I do. Um, and I can't quite place why I don't like hold it in like the top echelon of um, sort of Ghibli movies, even though I've seen this one quite a few times. I I mean I feel the same way about it. Um, I grew up with it, and it's it's one of the ones that I grew up with mostly because my cousins liked it a lot, so they would put it on quite frequently. Um, but obviously, like, I don't remember a lot of it until now in the recent years when I've been rewatching it. Um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting one because it's like you said, there's a lot of trademarks of Miyazaki that shows up here and it is a really fantastical type of, type of, uh, movie, mostly because there's all kinds of things included in it. You have the action, and then you have all of the... And then, uh, so so basically, this one has everything from the, from the action to the fantasy to this kind of made-up world. And obviously, you also have Miyazaki's little flying devices and flying objects and all kinds of different things. And you even have a flying island. So, yeah. <laughs> so... There's a lot of there's a lot of elements here that are really really well designed and it's definitely a step up from say Lupin the Third or or even um, Nausicaa and it's it's a, it's like you said it's much more ambitious uh, but maybe it's because it's it's a lot <laughs> that sometimes it feels like a lot of stuff happens also very quickly. Whether it's the character development to just everything happening really quickly uh, with the appearances of the pirates and, you know, all the forces coming at the same time. Okay. I don't know. Um, I mean, the film itself is set in an alternate uh, vision of the late 19th century, uh, where a young orphan girl called Sheeta is abducted by a government agent, Muska, um, who had some plans to use her blue crystal that she she's been that's been passed on to her and has been passed down the family line for generations and is believed to lead the way to the mythical flying city of of laputa um during her escape though she meets up with a orphan boy named pazu who were uh, assisting her escape with the pair soon teaming up with a family of sky pirates and setting forth to try and find this mysterious flying city so, yeah, I mean, as you've been to Reiki, I mean, this is a certainly more ambitious title. I mean, this one's long. It goes for some two-plus hours, which you certainly feel, I have to say, with this one. A lot of them 
of the um, Studio Ghibli movies they kind of really fly by but this one I really I really always feel the runtime, and at the same time when I look at where to make the cuts to it I can never really sort of place where I would what I would cut out because there's so many great scenes in this movie and that add so much to these characters it, but at the same time it just feels a little overly long for this story that's being told so yeah definitely I mean, the story, there is a lot of moving wheels, but at the same time, it it is, if you simplify it to the, you know, you can really simplify it down to really just, it's a very straightforward story about, you know, good and bad and, um, um, you know, like about power and, and just, it, it's a little girl who, who, who who's, who's moving up type of thing, right? It's kind of like Nausicaa is a princess <laughs> or something like that. There's always some type of hidden kind of secret to who they are, and and that's what that and and you know her connection to Laputa and 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 eventually you know you have Pazu and then you have the the, the sky pirates who kind of convert over the time. It's it's all about like good and bad, and there is a lot of like little silly moments in between that that are quite heartwarming, but in the end the story is pretty straightforward. It's just about a group of people who are trying to find this island and this this kind of like treasure type of stuff. Yeah, it's right? an adventure With... story, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Exactly. Um, at the same time, I mean, this is like a key component of like the steampunk movement. Uh, there's so many sort of elements in in this that would go on to inspire other works of like steampunk and certainly diesel punk as well. Right from the start, I mean, during the opening credits, we get all these little insights into how this world has evolved, how it's focused its attentions on to really onto flight as being one of its main uh, main forms of transport, and at the same time, everything's very much powered by steam, as we see with this the mining village that uh, Pazu lives in, which is uh, based on the uh, Welsh mining villages. Um, Miyazaki actually revisited Wales in 1984 and saw the miners' strikes and was very sort of inspired by the small mining communities and used it as inspiration for the town that Pazu lives in. And even when we, every location we go to has all these really interesting sort of characters, whether in Pazu's sort of hometown, there's his adoptive family when you have like... Um, He's sort of like a adopted sort of father figure who has this uh, great showdown with the Sky Pirates where they sort of like uh, had this um, moment where they're sort of like manning up to each other and they're just there flexing their muscles and having this shirt ripping contest and it's sort of broken up with uh, the miner's wife going, I'm not repairing that. <laughs> and it's just <laughs> so comically it's so comically cartoonish like how you see these two big guys just like swelling up and puffing out their chest um and at the same time it's got this sort of kind of groundedness to it so which i kind of like as well um as there's certainly many elements in this film that sort of tied into into the the real world so to speak as you have um elements of like of uh, Laputa's sort of like weaponry being referred to in like terms of like Hindu um, Hinduism and Roman mythology so this is probably like as I said whereas most of um, Ozaki's works sort of exist in their own sort of fantastical worlds this seems to be like one of his rare occasions where he does try and ground it some sort of sense into reality and at the same time we have elements that we've seen in his other films such as like the uh, the fox creatures we saw in Nautica Valley of the Wind which randomly mm -hmm. turn up in this film 
<laughs> so it's kind of fun when you look at this and you look and suddenly like look at characters or um certain creatures that like turn up in other in other films in the and um, the Ghibli world, such as like when we see the soot sprites in My Neighbor Totoro, who then turn up later in Spirited Away, and we can look at the engineer in this one and how he's basically the the basis for the uh the boiler room guy in Spirited Away as well. So Yeah. I mean it, it is it is pretty nice that, you know, when we when we look at Studio Ghibli as a whole, you really can see that kind of world overlapping, even though it's not the same thing that's going on. Um, it's it's kind of like a different story that they're telling, a different scenario type of thing. But uh, I mean, I, I get your I mean I get what you mean by the groundedness of it, and I think like the first part, I think those are the best parts of the film, um, especially when you're you have the beginning when things are much more lighthearted. And you have a lot more of kind of like just the civilians kind of making their living and and bonding together to help uh, to help Pazu and Shita escape and that sort of that sort of moment that's really really fun constantly and that still is apparent thanks to you know the whole air pirates type of scenario because they also have this kind of double side to them which is which is uh it's much like um the mom character which shows up a lot in what as you go further down into other films that he makes which is kind of like a witch character or some other character who initially feels like they're bad but they end up kind of changing their yeah. stance they're kind of in that gray area and that happens a lot in his storytelling which is something that i do like that kind of depth when you look at a character Oh, definitely so. And even with the actual Sky Pirates themselves, they're originally seen as these like these rogues when they're seen attacking the airship at the at the start of the film. And then when we get to meet them later in the film, and we just find they're sort of like a bunch of bumbling sort of crooks, but they've got a real good nature to them. Um, yeah. And the way as well, they're all really obsessed with uh, with with Shita. Um, so we have this scene where they're all like <laughs> skiving off their duties to go and visit her and she ends up like roping them into like working in the kitchen which I thought was kind of charming and <laughs> The char- I mean these two two characters, these sort of two child characters Pazu or Shita they're both very sort of adorable sort of characters and you have, enjoy this sort of innocence to their relationship that they have um, as it doesn't get caught up in sort of like complex feelings or anything, it's just about these two characters and their shared sort of wonder at the world around them. And certainly, perfectly matches when you've got something like Laputa, this this floating castle in the sky. So when we finally get to uh, Laputa in the in the final sort of thirty minutes of the film, it's sort of like they just like perfectly embrace it with all these like little features of uh of this world because by the time they get there it's essentially this abandoned floating city that nature's reclaimed uh with this one century robot that's basically going around acting as the uh caretaker for the for everything which is really interesting and um i also love the fact that this uh could possibly be set in canada because they have beavers <laughs> The thing is, Castle in the Sky is, is, is you know, when when we actually get to Laputa itself, it's such a, I think, like, 
that is truly the highlight of the film and you know we the whole seeking of this this place is is so worth it obviously because it's such a wonderful world like it's a world that hasn't been contaminated that nature still preserves and i think in in some ways this is kind of like it it also shows that yeah we can't have nice things <laughs> yes of course <laughs> because obviously <laughs> obviously what turns out really nice it ends up being you know destroyed at the end but also there's always a fail safe right for for these type of things and they were able to do that by the end of the film which is really really nice to kind of you know counteract the evil that wants to take over um you know from the two Laputa descendants who who end up there yeah i mean the actual location is very interesting to look at because on the surface you've got this sort of this sort of ancient city um that i mean the castle is the floating castle itself is obviously based on uh the pewter from gulliver's travels which is the third world he visits because he and on uh, and much like that one it's sort of like used for political power where they're constantly like raging war on the people on the ground um and with laputa it just basically has this top part which is this real beautiful sort of architecture and but as we mentioned already it's all been sort of taken over by nature so when you go in like the great dome and you see like the big tree that's like grown up through the middle of it and that there's just nature everywhere every nature has been reclaimed and it ties wonderfully into that reoccurring theme of nature versus technology that we see constantly through Miyazaki's works it's one of his favorite themes and we saw it in Nausicaa um we obviously didn't see it in the in um Castle Cagliostro but certainly with this one it's a chance for him to sort of like you know when when we uh leave things leave things alone nature just reclaims it and Again, by the end of the the film, when we remove the technology element of it, and just it's just left as this as the uh, the castle, and it floats off because you know we're not uh, we're not supposed to have it, so it reclaims itself, which I thought was pretty pretty poetic. So <laughs> for sure, I mean the the film itself is is, is really well designed. I think the. Laputa itself is such a wonderful location to discover and the amount of time they spend, you know, just doing the different shots of it as we approach and even as we distance away from it after everything that happens um, at for the big finale of the film. You kind of go back, you kind of like see that there's so much detail and I think this is where a lot of the details come out is is just the design of the 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 whole floating world and then as you go in you just think it's like it looks like it's so simple and then you realize that there's so much more especially when uh shita and obviously the villain here muska ends up going inside and you know even despite everything you see the contrast also in the characters just by how they treat this world i mean muska obviously is just you know he he's overcome with greed and the lust for power and that sort of thing. So he is just really, you know, ripping through everything and destroying everything that's there. Whereas, you know, Laputa, right from the beginning, she she's already trying to defend what's, you know, the world there as she, you know, obviously with the with and that 
you know, has the first encounter with the, the yes. robot. Yeah, I mean, the robots themselves are really charming creation, the century robots. They've got the big long arms and sort of gangly limbs. Yeah. And we see it um, when you, if you play Overwatch, uh, the character Bato, who's a, a, a big robot, he has a skin where he's basically the, uh, like, he looks like one of the century robots from this film. He's covered in, like, moss and things. So, and even the century robots have been reclaimed by nature in this film. They've, they, we see them covered with moss when they cover the uh, animals run around them and stuff. So it's kind of uh, nice them. And they've got, even though they don't speak, they, there's a lot of personality to those robots. It has to be said. It's sort of thing I wish someone to make like a big statue of somewhere. So. <laughs> It'd just be really be really cool just to have it in like the middle of a garden somewhere. Just just this big robot statue. I always thought so. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be pretty neat. <laughs> that's 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 my uh, my my, pl- my future plans. So I'm gonna get a giant century robot for my garden. Love the love it when you see, uh, like when you see like um drone cam footage of like abandoned theme parks. Um, these areas that have been sort of abandoned and nature's reclaimed them. I always love seeing seeing how um, things are just re- taken back. And I think with uh, with Laputa, it's it's just this classic example of it. It's sort of like all the the people that that are there and have basically abandoned it, and all the sort of secrets, even secrets of like hidden deep within the city. Are being reclaimed by nature, as we see with uh, Musker, who's sort of like frustrated the fact that the roots of the tree have like gone down into the main sort of control room, and there's just like grass growing everywhere. So, because normally when we see these sort of like ancient sort of control rooms, they're always like in such pristine condition. But um, which makes mm. it kind of interesting when we look at Mozaki's vision of these worlds, and it's sort of like, no, if nature's going to reclaim it reclaim this sort of site and it's going to reclaim everything so these roots would obviously be right down into it so it, it, it surprisingly made it like one of the more plausible aspects because there's certain really unplausible aspects in this film um, many involving uh, Pato squeezing through things or firing um, grenades at point blank range and not being blown up <laughs> And it's like when you see him like hanging off the side of the, like the pillars underneath this, underneath the castle, or when he's like hanging on the vines and stuff, and it's just like these really these sort of implausible like uncharted style uh, moments of action. It it just like it just makes you wonder sort of like you have to really sort of let the plausibility go, just like the sheer that this uh this little kid from a mining town is able to hang off buildings and clamber around crumbling structures with ease he's goes like full on chimp mode towards the end so (laughs) well i mean i think that a lot of that has to go with the fact that this is still an animated film so part of it is geared towards kids so it it still gives you that room for imagination and you know to the you know the you know, to to believe that this stuff is exists and that it's possible, you know, believing the impossible and and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that because of that, a lot of times, like those, like plausibility situation, is a little bit more forgivable, at least yeah. for myself. 
Um, like, I don't look at the film and be like, oh, wow, how is he able to do that? Well, no, I mean, obviously, <laughs> like, there was one scene in this one where he ends up in this, like, he gets rebounded off and then he ends up in this, like, little metal tube <laughs> holding onto the slit by his fingertips type of thing, right? And you're just thinking, like, in normal situations, this is a slide. You would just slid right off. And then on top of that, <laughs> adding to it, there were these, like, these robots sliding out of it. And he sees that, and he just kind of, like, maneuvers around it, you know? Obviously, that's not plausible in any way, because just right from the start, you're not, you're not that, and you're, it's hard to believe that that's even possible to achieve. But at the same time, I mean... I think that when you watch something like this, I guess the imagination of it is really nice. And I mean, it's a bit of a movie yeah. magic where you kind of get to, you know, animated films give you the possibility to believe in something that you normally wouldn't believe exists, especially when you're looking at, you know, Miyazaki movies, especially as we go further into his catalog, we're going to be heading into a lot more things that are much more just you know, fantastical and things that wouldn't really exist. You know, obviously, you know, when you talk about plausibility, you're not talking about fantasy. Um, but at the same time, like, I I believe it's a little bit more forgivable just because it's animated. Yeah, I mean, it does obviously give you that that sort of freedom to, to, to play around more with the implausibility. I suppose if we were to obviously look at this in a live action, it would be more jarring because it would obviously be CGI. Uh, and I think this is this is the wonderful thing about animation is the fact that you can do things like this and you don't really question it as much. The leaps don't seem as extreme as when we look at like the CGI and I think we were talking about this when we were looking at the Uncharted film the other the other week, uh, and we were talking about like how the CGI made it seem really jarring. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, it's it's you know the world right now with films like. With films like, you know, the Fast and the Furious franchise. Yeah, never prime like example. That. When you're talking about real life action or even like any, you know, uh, Dwayne Johnson action film that you can think of. It's basically a lot of it is is it's just trying to what is it? What, what do you call that again? Uh, the the sense of disbelief. I, I can't remember what it is. What the exact oh, plausibility. And. Well, that plausibility, but there was some other term that people used to used to say when the Fast Furious thing was, especially with that airplane scene that took like fifteen miles <laughs> to finish, uh, the never ending, uh, you know. But yeah, um, but no, I mean it's just like making people believe. Like it's just you the suspension of right disbelief. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the thing is that I think when you talk about movies like this nowadays, a lot of it is anchored in that sort of mentality and that is a lot of times the blockbusters that we end up seeing or just you know the really big budget films that we see they might not be any like quality cinema but the entertainment comes in the fact that you have that suspension of disbelief but people forget that you know you can have that same thing when you're watching films like this like this one which is animated and i don't know I mean, I, <laughs> it's just, it's just like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a big issue in believing in like having that suspension of disbelief like other people do. Um, I mean, I do like the Fast and the Furious franchise quite a bit. So, 
I don't know. I mean, I think maybe that it, it just depends on the person, right? <laughs> when we talk about this. True, true. Um, I mean, let's just look at quick look at the the voice cast here. I mean, this one's got a really interesting voice cast. Anna Panquin plays Sheeta. James Vanderbeek plays Pazu, who's unrecognizable here. And Cloris Leachman played Dora. And uh, Mark Hamill gives us sort of like Joker light with his Colonel Musker. Um, whereas mm. also we also get Jim Cummings as the general. Um, Jim Cummings is probably would be really well known if you watch a lot of Disney movies or Disney things, then his voice like be will be really recognisable. He does uh, Pete on Mickey Mouse cartoons. He does Tigger and Taz and um, Monterey mm. Jack in Rescue Rangers. I was the whole time when like was like every time the general's on the screen, I'm just trying to like. Place where place where the voice was, and it's like, oh, it's just Pete from Mickey Mouse and the Goofy cartoon. So, <laughs> well, I mean, you even have like uh, you even have like Mandy Paddington, which uh, who who I guess his most. If you don't know him from um, Criminal yep. Minds, then you would know him from his very early role in Princess Bride. Yes, he's in Princess Bride. <laughs> he was in Dead Like Me. And he was also in Dick Tracy. Don't know who the hell he was in Dick Tracy. He was 88 Keys. I have no idea who that was. <laughs> that movie. But that, that's another movie for another day. That's insane, that film is. so. But yeah, it's a really interesting, really interesting cast. I mean, obviously Mark Hamill here doing his second Ghibli performance here. And I think this one, this time it's a little more obvious. And I think just because it's so close to his Joker voice, even though he's... Reportedly based on David Hyde, Hyde P- Pierce uh, when he came to like finding the tone for the robe. I think he's seriously villainous here, um, especially in his ruthless pursuit of power, which he obviously believes that Laputa gives him. Um, more than willing to drop a whole army out of the sky, as we see in the most, probably one of the most jaw dropping sequences of the film. And it's up there with uh, the two crush deaths we get in Castle Cagriosto. You remind you remind yourself. Oh wait, these aren't supposed to be kids' movies. We just watched them a lot as kids because you know the fantasy and the whimsy of it all. But no, he Mizaki does have his dark moments, much like um, much like Jim Henson. Um, Henson, yeah, yeah, Jim Henson. Uh, when you look at like Dark Crystal and stuff, he has his dark moments as well. Yeah, but I mean, I, you know, that's the thing is, it's hard to say. Like, I grew up with Miyazaki because there wasn't a whole lot of choices i guess when you're younger you either you know if you were into the american stuff it would be disney obviously or um what's the other one that did uh oh five uh like don bluth cartoons yeah and don bluth right um but but then you know if, if for myself i grew up more i grew up in an asian household so you your your go to is these Chinese dub Miyazaki yeah. films, <laughs> which everybody grows up with. So, to us, it, to me, actually, even Lulit watching it in Japanese is is always kind of like weird. I kind of prefer it in Cantonese, mostly because that's the version that I've always grew up okay. listening to, um, especially the older ones. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, it isn't meant. For kids, like every every single one, like 
I mean, you can argue the same thing when you when you when you look at like obviously we're not covering it this time and in, in, in this season because it's not a Miyazaki exactly, but um, it's a Studio Ghibli. If you look at like um, a Grave of the Fireflies, like that's not for kids. <laughs> like you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna ball your eyes out. <laughs> yeah, it's not like a lighthearted. I adventure. mean, yeah, I mean Grave of Fireflies <laughs> is rough, and but if you watch like Barefoot, Barefoot Jen went certainly a lot harder than Grave of the Fireflies did. Um, yeah. And then it was weird that you obviously, I mean, you obviously got to grow up with these. I didn't get to see these until I was in college. This was in 2000 that they sort of started making their way over to the UK. Um, we just, they, they, they just seemed to like be like the secret handshake where you'd hear about people talk about like Kiki's delivery service and like things like Fruits yeah. Basket. And we had, unless you had like a hookup for tape trade, then you never, you never got some because they came over here a lot later. Um, and which which seems weird now, since it's like they're so embedded in in sort of like modern in culture over here. And I think it was really spirited away that's really helped sort of push them all to come across. Um, I think spirited away, because I want to say spirited away won the Oscar. Um, yeah. that uh, saw them saw them all being picked up for distribution in the UK because it was all like, oh, well, what else have they done? <laughs> so we finally got to. Uh, get like proper copies of them uh, shortly after Spirit of the Way came out so that's distribution for your kids constantly screwing the UK <laughs> over because distributors hate the UK um, as we saw with everything everywhere at once <laughs> yeah well I mean it's it's just I think that a lot of this stuff, even because it took so long to get here, that there's still a lot of people who don't really know what Studio Ghibli is. I, I have talked to many, many people who do not know what Studio Ghibli is. Um, or Miyazaki, or haven't heard anything about these these films and stuff like that. And it, it's, it's, it's kind of sad, you know, sometimes I think, because these are such treasures, I think, that they finally made it over and still it's not exactly like a lot of people know about it. Yeah. Maybe it's just a generation. I don't even, this is I'd say it's a generation thing, but then again, I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of, uh, millennials who really like shoot a Ghibli movies because they can, there's so many aspects of it. They're in the pop culture. I mean, even like Totoro turns up in toy story. Um, <laughs> yeah. he's uh, turned up in Toy Story 3 which really sort of like marks out just how ingrained in in popular culture these movies are and I think a lot of the people while some of the films aren't as uh, sort of like they don't get the same rec recognition as others I mean things like I think like things like uh, Spirit Away My, My Neighbor Totoro are certainly higher up there and things like Princess Monoki have fallen slightly more by the wayside. Uh, certainly Pompoko, and it's nobody ever talks about that. Like My Neighbors, the Yatamaras, uh, or The Cat Returns. Nobody yeah. ever talks about these ones, and they're great movies. Yeah. So I think it's all about it's all about the the characters that happen to be in them. If there's something that is recognizable or spark some sort of feeling in people then i think those ones are the ones that tend to be more in the public conscious and uh the ones like this one which are a little more grounded even though i suppose i do see occasionally see that robot century turn up a few places so 
I think I think that Castle in the Sky is actually pretty well known, you know, in comparison to the other movies. But it, it's just because of age that it it maybe falls short a little. Possibly so. Um, I mean, it's like nobody really nobody talks about Nausicaa exactly, do they? So yeah. Um, and just like trying, and much like again, Porco Rosso. Nobody really talks about that, and Porco Rosso is great. <laughs> so. It's. I think it, it, it all comes down to like you know, there's some character or something that um, that people can latch onto, and I think the more fantastical ones are certainly the ones that uh, tend to have that. Where these slightly more grounded sort of adventure stories that don't uh, often have those elements to them. I I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, this obviously brings us into tonight's episode. Thank you as always for listening. If you wanted to let us know your own thoughts on the Miyazaki filmography, please do. You can get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. You can also um, check out our blog, which is moosandteapodcast.wordpress.com, uh, which has got our full archive of episodes on there as well, including our Friday Film Club, where every Friday myself and Kim both pick a film to highlight as a way to talk about more of the movies that uh, we enjoy. Um, and if you could hit the like and subscribe button as well, that'd be most appreciated. Wherever you happen to be listening to this, maybe leave us a review, as it all helps raise the profile of the show. But uh, Kim, where are we going to next? Yeah, we're going to a film that you mentioned constantly oh, in the show, um, and that's 1988's My Neighbor Totoro. Yes, a movie I wish I liked more, but it's so ingrained in the public conscious for so many reasons that we will cover on the next episode um but i believe this is one of your favorites kim is that right so yes this is going to be a real 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 interesting episode to see that clash of opinions for that one but uh, make sure you join us for that one uh, but until then thank you for listening and we'll be back next time to talk about my neighbor totoro mm-hmm.